Welcome to this episode of the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. Here is your host, Pastor Eric Stillman. This morning I'm continuing through the book of Philippians, a sermon series on Philippians, which is a book written by the Apostle Paul, a letter actually written by Paul to a church in Philippi that he had started, and he is writing this letter from a Roman prison. He's been unjustly imprisoned. He doesn't know whether or not he's going to get out. Um, And so he's writing this letter basically to encourage them, to let them know he loves them, whether or not he comes encouraging them to stay true and obedient to Jesus. And uh, we're going to be in Philippians 2, 12 through 18 this morning, kind of taking it a few verses at a time as we go through this. But this section we're going to be in this morning is the culmination of a section that began back in chapter 1, verse 27. So I'm going to go back to that. We're going to read from 127 all the way to 218. And so as we read through, I'm going to remind you um, of, of what he's saying to them and what he's encouraging them. So let me start with Philippians 1, 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence... I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggles you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. That was the section we looked at two weeks ago, where he's encouraging them to live a life worthy of the gospel, whether or not he's there. It's this call to integrity, you know, whether or not I'm here. As a parent, you might say that, you know, whether I'm in the house or I'm not in the house, we want you to behave, right? And he's saying, whether or not I'm here, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Strive together for unity in love and put the honor of God, of Christ, above your own comfort and honor. He goes on in Philippians 2 to not only continue to exhort them in that way, but also to point them to the example of Jesus. Oops, sorry, let me go back to that. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, Or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Stop there. That was last week's uh, section that we looked at. So again, in his encouragement to each other, he's encouraging the Philippians to love each other, to put the needs of each other above your own, to look to the interests of others, not just to be so self-centered. And he says, look to the example of Jesus Look at how God the Father gave his son on the cross for you. And so you can be generous with others knowing that God is generous with you, that he will meet your needs so that you can concern yourself with the needs of others. 
Look to how, even though you were a sinner separated from a holy God, that he gave his son to die for you when you were a sinner, when you were his enemy. And if he gave his son when you were his enemy, how much more will he give you what you need now that you're his son and daughter? Again, your identity is secure. Your love, your worth is secure in the gospel. And then he says, look at the example of the love of Jesus. He was in very nature God, the eternal son of God, but nothing was beneath him. He was willing to take the lowest place as a servant all the way to a humiliating, torturous death on the cross for you. And if he, who was God, was willing to take the lowest place for you, how much more should we, who are definitely not God, how much more should we be willing to serve each other to take the lowest place? Nothing should be beneath us as well. So now let's move on to the section for today where he again, returns to this theme of giving yourselves fully to God. And and let me read, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, please, we ask you to open our ears and open our hearts to hear, to understand this, to apply this to our lives. Help us to not miss what it is that the Spirit has to say to his church today. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, this section began in chapter 1, verse 27, and he's encouraging them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whether or not he comes to visit or he just wants them to be tra- true, truthful, to be faithful, I'm sorry, true and faithful to Jesus. He wants them to love each other, to elevate each other's needs above their own, look out to the, for the interests of others. And then in this section, he says, I want you to work out your salvation with a holy fear and reverence before God because God is working in you towards his good purpose. I want to look closely at that section there, verses 12 to 13. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It seems like a, there's a couple confusing elements in this when you read it. There's, it's a little bit of a conundrum. First of all, I'd say seeing work and salvation in the same sentence can be a little confusing for those of us who believe that the gospel is about, not about what works you do, but about faith in Jesus. So what does he mean when he talks about working out your salvation? Remember, of course, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, where he says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So in this section, he's clearly saying, your works don't save you. Your good works cannot make you right before God. It's by faith in Jesus. So what does he mean then when he's talking about work out your salvation? And then secondly, he tells them to work out your salvation because God is working in you. So what does that mean? How are we supposed to work while God works in us? What does that look like in practice? How do we work while God works? So 
the two conundrums here I just want to address first and foremost to understand this passage. If we're not saved by our works, then what does Paul mean by work out your salvation? And then secondly, what does it look like to work while God works in us? And I think answering these two questions are really going to give you great insight into discipleship and faith and what it means, what it looks like to follow Jesus. So first question, what does Paul mean when he talks about work out your salvation with fear and trembling? I think the confusion for some of us might come because we think of salvation as something that God has done for us in the past, when in reality in the Bible, salvation has a past, present, and a future dimension. Past dimension is this, that we have been saved from the penalty of sin, what the Bible calls justification. There's also a present dimension, though, that we are being saved from the power of sin in our lives. And then one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. So the confusion sometimes is that we think, well, we're saved not by our works. We're saved in the past not by our works, but by faith in Jesus. But there's a present dimension to salvation that I think Paul is getting at here. So in the past, we were saved from the power of our sins. Think of Romans chapter 8, 1 through 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. We're saved from the penalty of sin once and for all, that's it, right? doesn't matter what we do in the present or the future. We're saved once and for all from the penalty of sin. There's no condemnation. And the passage we just read, it is by grace you have been saved. Past tense, right? By grace you have been saved and it's not by works. It's by faith. So that's the past tense of salvation. That we were sinners separated from a holy God, but that we've been saved. We've been justified, declared not guilty by a holy God by Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. We're justified. We're also adopted as his children, as beloved children, and we're regenerated. He's put his Holy Spirit in us. That's all the past tense stuff that God did. That's the past tense of salvation. But there's also a present tense of salvation, what the Bible calls sanctification, that we're being saved from that day that we're saved till the end of our lives. We are being saved from the power of sin in our lives. This is what I think Paul's referring to when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying work for your salvation. You've already been saved from the penalty of sin. But now work out your salvation. Work for this. Take part in your, just, in your sanctification. 1 Corinthians 1.18 is an example where he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Present tense there. We are being saved. That the cross is the power of God for us who are being saved, to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ, to do away with the old sinful nature and to put on the new nature to be like Christ. And so there is a place for work. There is a place for effort in that, in our sanctification. And then finally, there's a future dimension. We will be saved from the presence of sin, which the Bible calls glorification. That one day, hallelujah, sin will be no more, evil will be no more. All that is broken and fallen and messed up will be no more. That we will be with him forever. We'll be saved from the very presence of sin. Romans 5, 9 through 10 is an example of this. It says, since we have now been justified by his blood, past tense, how much more shall we be saved, future tense, from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? We will be saved, future tense, from the wrath of God on sin because 
The blood of Jesus, his death has covered us. We're perfect in his sight. Future tense. So again, if you've gotten confused when you see work and salvation in the same sentence, this is why. There's a past, present, and future dimension. Not just that you were saved, but you are being saved, and one day you will be saved from the very presence of sin. So when he's telling them, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, he's saying, participate with God and the Holy Spirit in your sanctification. Leave behind your old life. Be the new creation in Christ that he's created you to be. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So part of what it means to live as a Christian is to put off the old self, the old way you used to be, to no longer live according to the way you did before you knew Jesus, and now put on the new self. Live like Jesus. Live following him. Live according to the Spirit. And as we've been reading, one of the most important parts of this new life, one of the most important parts of these works that God has given you is to love to love your neighbor, to love each other. Galatians 5, 13 to 14. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's like, if you can't memorize all the laws in the Bible, all the commands, just memorize this one. Just put this one into practice. Love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, 9 through 10. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So participate with God in your your sanctification. He's saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's going to mean putting off the old self, the old way it used to be, and living for Jesus and living to love each other. So how does this all work together then? The whole part about work out your salvation as Jesus works in you. How does that, how does that work? To continue to work out your salvation as, Jesus, as, as God works in you. How are you supposed to understand that dynamic, that tension? Because on the one hand, he, there's a lot of verses so far in Philippians where he's exhorting the Philippians to work to be responsible, to be united, to strive together for the gospel, to look to the needs of others, to consider others better than yourselves. There's a lot of things he's asking them to do. But then there's other verses where he talks about God working in them. Remember Philippians 1.6 where he said that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That God began the work. God's working in you. God's going to carry it on to completion. And so you have this dynamic where God's at work, but we're supposed to be working as well. Well, sometimes I think when you're trying to understand dynamics like this in the Bible, it can be helpful to think on a continuum. You know, there's, there's kind of two extremes that you don't want to fall in the extremes because when you do, you wind up imbalanced and missing something in your discipleship. So on this continuum, historically, there's two words and two movements that have been known as quietism and pietism. I don't know if they rhymed on purpose, but they do. Quietism and pietism. Quietism is the let go and let God approach. Jesus take the wheel, right? It's the, like, my job is to just sit back and trust. I pray, I trust, and let God do the work. That's quietism. Be quiet and let God work. Pray for the job that you want and wait for him to provide it. Pray for him to take away your desire for your addiction and wait for him to work. God, I am not going to leave this room until you tell me what to do. 
And it may sound spiritual, but there's something missing in that. There's something missing in that approach. It isn't just that you pray and wait and do nothing. One historical example would be in the 18th century, overseas missions had pretty much come to a stop because there was a belief that if God wanted to save people, then God would save people. We just need to pray. And then there was a man named William Carey who said, no, God has already said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So it's not just you just wait and pray and and see what God does, but we also need to go. We need to go and make disciples of all nations. So, So he started, kicked off the modern missions movement by going to India to share the gospel. So on the one end of that spectrum is the quietism approach of let go, let God. I just, I need to pray and I need to wait on God and that's it. The other end, of course, is the pietism approach. This is the approach that stresses effort and work, Bible study, self-discipline, personal effort. But misses out on the trust in God and the prayer. This approach, of course, is also imbalanced because you can't make yourself holy through your own efforts. You can't accomplish anything of spiritual significance on your own effort. You're going to end up in either pride or despair depending on how you think you're doing into your own, with your own effort. And if you don't trust in God and rely on his spirit and power, you're going to end up carrying a much heavier burden than you were meant to carry. Some of you know what I'm talking about here. If you fall on this end of, no, it's up to me and I need to work, then you end up carrying a huge burden, more of a burden than you were meant to carry. It leads to great anxiety and fear because, well, if you screw up, well, it was your own fault and it's up to you and you're going to end up in this place of despair. There's something missing. I don't know where you feel like if you fall on one or the other, one more on the quietest of, I'm just going to pray, I'm going to let go, let God, and, but maybe the, the effort, the working out your salvation part is lacking, or maybe you end up more on the pietist where it's up to me and I need to work hard, but sometimes you forget to trust God and to depend upon him. There's something missing with both approaches, and both approaches are imbalanced. God does not just work through passive people who just sit back and say, I'm not going to leave this room until you tell me what to do. Nor does he work through people who are just trying to shoulder the load themselves and doing it all in their own power. He works through people who work with all their might for him while also depending upon him with their whole heart. Charles Spurgeon put this better than I ever could. He was a famous 19th century English preacher. He put it this way. In God's word, the car of truth runs on two rails of parallel statements. A great many people want to pull up one of the rails. They will not accept two sets of truth. Predestination and free agency do not agree, so the modern Solomons assert. Who said they do not agree? They do agree as fully as two rails on a tram line. But some narrow spirits must set aside the one or the other. They cannot accept both. This has long been a puzzle on paper, but in practice, it is ease itself. So here, the practical action of the believer throwing his whole might into his master's service perfectly well agrees with his falling back upon the working of God and knowing that it is God who works all things for him. David's slaying of the lion and the bear and the Philistine is clear, but God's delivering him out of the jaw of the lion and the paw of the bear and the hand of the Philistine is equally clear. Make it plain to your own self. I believe that when I preach, I ought to prepare and study my sermon as if it's success altogether depended on me, but that when I am thus thoroughly furnished, I have to trust in God as much as if I had done nothing at all. The same view should be taken of your view and your service for God. Work as if you were to be saved by your works and then trust Christ only because it is only by him 
that you are capable of a single good work. Work for God with all your might, as if you did it all, but then always remember that it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. How is it that the Philistine be killed? By God, says one. True, but not without David. By David, says another. Yes, but not without God. Put the Lord on the march with David, and you put the Philistines into untimely graves. When David moves to fight, God being with him, off comes Goliath's head. Nor champions' heads nor demons' helmets can stand against the man of God. It's still a little bit of a puzzle, I know, but I hope you understand what he's saying there, what I'm trying to communicate, what Paul is trying to communicate, that we work with all our might while trusting God with all of our heart, while praying, while depending upon the power of the Holy Spirit, while recognizing we can do nothing apart from him. There's a few more verses that emphasize this dynamic. Colossians 1, 28 to 29. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Psalm 127, 1, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. Again, see what's going on there? They're building the house, but the Lord's building the house. They're watching over the city, but unless the Lord is watching over the city, they're doing it in vain. It's both and. It's not either or. And how about Nehemiah 4, 8 through 9? They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. I think that's a great example there, what we're talking about. You think about the continuum from quietism to pietism. The quietists, would, what would they do? They would have an all-night prayer meeting. The, the, the armies are coming against us. We need to have an all-night prayer meeting and call upon our God. The pietists would post, as it said, post a guard day and night to meet the threat. What did Nehemiah do? Both. They posted a guard to meet the threat, and they called upon the Lord day and night. Do you need a job? Pray for God to provide a job while you're going out looking to for a job and applying for jobs? Are you looking for a romantic partner? Pray that God would provide a romantic partner while you go out to meet people. Is there a relationship in your life that is strained or broken? Pray that God would restore that relationship while doing all you can to work for peace in that relationship. Are you stuck in an addiction or a pattern of sin in your life? Pray that God would break that addiction or sin pattern, but do it while fighting against it, seeking accountability, confessing to another person. Pray and work. Work and pray. Work with all your might while depending upon the power of God because on your own you can do nothing. But if you're doing nothing, then God is not going to work through a passive person. Jerry Bridges put it this way in his book, Discipline of Grace. God's work does not make our effort unnecessary but rather makes it effective. God's work does not make our effort unnecessary, but rather makes it effective. And John Owen, a Puritan pastor and author, he wrote this, if holiness be our duty, they would say, there is no room for grace. And if it be the result of grace, there's no place for duty. But our duty 
and God's grace are nowhere opposed in the matter of sanctification, for the one absolutely supposes the other. We cannot perform our duty without the grace of God, nor does God give his grace for any other purpose than that we may perform our duty. So once again, work as if your sanctification depends upon you. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. But depend upon God to empower you by the power of his Holy Spirit, knowing that nothing of lasting spiritual significance can be accomplished if you're working on your own. John 15, 5, I am the vine and you are the branches, Jesus said. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing. It's both and. It's not either or. It's not pray and don't work. It's, don't, it's not work and don't pray. It is work and pray. Give yourself fully while trusting completely. So again, go back to that past, present, and future dimension. Praise God that by Jesus' death on the cross, you are saved from the penalty of sin. Praise God that one day, when you are with him, you'll be saved from the very presence of sin. And in between those times... God wants to free you from the very power of sin in your life. And it's going to happen while you work and depend on him. While you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, with reverence towards God, trusting that he is at work in you by the power of his Holy Spirit. I want to finish this sermon by just highlighting again the rest of this passage and one specific area where he talked about them working out their sanctification. That part in yellow up there. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Some of you don't need to hear that. I'm sure some of you have no problem with that. But most of us, I would say, need to hear this part. It says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. As you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ, that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. And so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, look, I look around the world and there's a lot of crookedness and depravity. And depravity is another word for moral corruption. This is 2,000 years ago, but it could be, that could be read, written in any generation. You look around the world and there's a lot of crookedness, a lot of moral depravity. He says that gives you an opportunity to shine like stars. To shine like a star, to shine like a light in the darkness as you live for Christ, as you hold out the word of life. So he says, instead of just getting bogged down with complaining about the world and in your life, complaining and arguing about the brokenness and the crookedness and the depravity, instead of consuming yourself with complaining and arguing, get busy doing what God has called you to do. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Loving each other. Loving your neighbor. Get busy doing that without complaining or arguing. Let's start with the complaining part. If you have been saved from the penalty of your sin, then you know that you are living a life that you do not deserve, right? If you know that 
because of your sin, that you were separated from a holy God and you were headed for eternal separation. And he gave his life to save you and rescue you and bring you into a right relationship with God. And he's adopted you as his beloved child. And he's given you his Holy Spirit to empower you to be the person that he's created you to be. He's declared you not guilty, that there's no condemnation. We could go on and on, right? But all of the things he's given you, he says, where's the place for complaining? Everything good in your life is an undeserved gift of God's grace. Complaining so often comes when we feel like we deserve something, we're owed something that we don't have. There's bitterness, there's resentment, there's complaining. But if we know that we deserved nothing, we deserved death, we deserved eternal separation, and we've been given life and God and the Holy Spirit, all of this instead, he says, well, do everything without complaining then. What's the opposite of complaining? Gratitude, maybe? Thanksgiving? Praising? That there's so much to be grateful for? Not only that, you have an eternity of love and joy and peace to look forward to. However bad it may be now, you know that eternity, that there's going to be no more presence of sin. That you're going to be in a place where it's love, it's joy, it's peace forever. It's God. Do everything without complaining. Trust me, you will never have to give up or sacrifice more than Jesus had to. This prayer I shared a few weeks ago from a book, The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. And the prayer God and myself says this, whatever cross I am required to bear, let me see him carrying a heavier. Such a remedy for bitterness and complaining in that line right there. Do everything without complaining because you are doing better than you deserve. You have been given more than you deserve. Everything in your life, every breath that you breathe is an undeserved gift of the grace of God. Do everything without complaining and doing everything without arguing. Again, he brings them back to the gospel. If you have been saved by grace, by the sacrificial death of Jesus, despite the penalty that you deserve for your sin, he has shown you grace, undeserved favor, forgiveness, mercy. Therefore, he says, go and show the same to others. Do everything without arguing. If he gave his life for you and laid down his life, then go and lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. Go and be willing to serve. Do everything without complaining or arguing. In that way, he says, you will stand out. You will stand out in the midst of a crooked and depraved world where everyone thinks they didn't get what they deserve, where everyone wants more, and where everyone complains and argues about everything. He says, you will stand out if you live in gratitude, in peace, because of the gospel. Paul says, I want to be able to stand before God on that day as a, like a proud father. Proud of his children as I present you to the father. And he says, I'm okay with pouring out my life as a drink offering. He says, I'm okay with sacrificing myself for you. I want you to be glad and rejoice with me because I love you and I'm willing to sacrifice myself for you. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you might shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. 
Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for God is working in you. You're not alone. God has given you his Holy Spirit. So go and give yourself fully to the work he has for you that you might shine like a light shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and depraved world because God is at work in you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We do agree with Jesus' words that like a branch is to a vine, apart from you we can do nothing. Apart from you we are spiritually dead. And so Lord, we pray that you would help us to connect to you in a deeper way to depend upon you, to rely on you, to draw strength from you today. Apart from you, we can do nothing. But Lord, also help us to give ourselves fully to the work you have for us, to strive with all our heart to love each other, to seek unity, to love our neighbor as you've loved us, to proclaim the gospel. Help us to work out our salvation in fearful reverence, as you work in us, Lord. Thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. We are located at 1155 Silas Dean Highway in Weathersfield, Connecticut, and can be found online at newlife-ct.org. No redistribution or use of any kind of this recording is allowed without express written consent of New Life Christian Fellowship. 